We sang together, uh, leading into this time in the Word of the Lord. There is, are just not enough human words. Words are inadequate, and there's not enough time to lay out the full truth of who Jesus is as we seek to behold Him together and as we seek to worship Him. But we're going to try to talk about some of it this morning. And my prayer has been that behind all the words and all the time, that we will truly get a glimpse, just a glimpse of His glory. I was thinking recently of the upcoming eclipse, and maybe some of you remember from the last one. All it takes is a little tiny corner of the sun peeking out to light up the world. And maybe we can get just a little tiny glimpse of the glory of the Lord this morning. I've been thinking about foundations. I was mentioning to a couple of you in conversation that I've spent some time in my crawl space this week, which is not a pleasant place to be. Um, not related to the foundation, doing some other stuff, but you can't be down there and not see those big piers and think about the fact that your whole house is resting on these things. And you, you trust that they are very solidly placed to form the basis of your home. And foundations are significant in Scripture. The, the idea of a foundation is important here in the book of Ephesians as Paul talks about the building. Uh, Jesus talks about the significance of the foundation. Is your house built on the sand with no foundation, or is your house built on the rock of Jesus Christ? And the house that is built on a firm foundation will stand when the pressures and difficulties, the floods of life uh, come rushing in upon us. This foundation that Jesus was talking about was truth the truth of His Word. And so as we're getting into Ephesians, I realize that we would do well to spend some time on the foundations, on, on these basic truths, fundamental truths that Paul has in mind and that we should have in mind as we study these six wonderful chapters. And he actually lays these truths out for us in the very next verse uh, last week we talked about verses 1 and 2, so this week we're going to talk about 3. I promise we're not going to spend a whole week on every single verse in Ephesians, although honestly, so many of these verses could actually be broken down even further. Uh, you can talk to Dr. Lloyd-Jones about how long we could spend in Ephesians. Um, we're not going to do that, but we are going to spend some time today on Ephesians 1, 3, praise Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In this verse, Paul lays out for us fundamental truths about God, about Jesus, about ourselves, and even, as we are going to see, about the Holy Spirit. First of all, in speaking of God, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Honestly, I, I like preaching from the NIV, but this is one point at which I'm a little disappointed. Uh, and in fact, the old version of the NIV said the word that's there, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The form of this verse is, is the very high and poetic language of an Old Testament blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this pattern of blessing is significant for us because it helps us to understand the nature of what Paul is saying. When we read words, praise be to, we read it as an exhortation, as if we are being called here to give praise to God because he needs to receive that from us. This is not what Paul is saying. Rather, he is making statements of fact about who God is. He is declaring the blessedness of God. And there's another little, uh, oh, what's the English? Um, uh, another little pitfall uh, in, in this understanding, and that is the word blessed isn't uh, the Beatitudes kind of blessed, where we can be blessed if we do certain things. It's actually a totally different word. It's the word that we get eulogy or benediction from. Literally, good word. Benediction, Latin roots for good word. Eulogy, Greek roots for good word. Paul is declaring good words. He's declaring solid truth about who God is. He is proclaiming what is known and should be known and should be attributed to God. He is making statements of fact. One example uh, of this Old Testament pattern of blessing would be Psalm 41.13, where the psalmist says, NIV translation, praise be, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen. The psalmist is attributing glory to God. He's talking about the excellencies of God in saying that God is from everlasting to everlasting. So the first thing we're seeing here is that Paul is speaking words about the transcendence of God, about the excellencies of God. As we go through the scriptures and, and look at these various blessings, these words of benediction that are spoken about God, we see his his powerful attributes. Blessed be the Lord, the creator of the universe. And so the, the benediction speaks of God's creative power, of the fact that he is the one who rules over all of creation because he is the one who actually brought into existence everything that is around us. The blessings speak about the eternality of God from everlasting to everlasting. They speak of his faithfulness. He is the one who never fails, the one who keeps all of his promises. These benedictions speak of God as the one who rescues, who saves his people, who reaches into our circumstances and lifts us out of them. 
the blessings speak of the fact that God is the one who is over all. And this lays out for us fundamental truths that we must understand in going to the book of Ephesians, and that is the superiority, the supremacy, the transcendence of God over everything. Remember, the Ephesian people were living in an age of spiritual warfare surrounded by idols, and Paul wants us to know that God is above all of that in everyone of his excellencies. And he wants us to know that he doesn't derive his worthiness from us or his blessedness from us, that he is in and of himself worthy and blessed. He is not calling us to give to God something that he doesn't have already. He is calling us to acknowledge things that are true about God that we do well to believe and to speak. And this idea that God does not derive his glory from us in some way then extends for us to understand his existence He doesn't derive his existence from anything. He exists in and of himself, independent and outside and therefore superior to all of creation. And he doesn't derive his will from us. Paul speaks about the will of God over and over in the book of Ephesians. And the things that God does do not depend on us rather depend entirely on himself, on his goodwill, on his pleasure, on his grace and mercy. And so Paul begins by speaking of the transcendence and the independence and the excellencies of God that are evident but are not dependent on us. Paul also speaks of God as the Father. And here the Old Testament pattern of blessing has something added to it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fatherhood is such, the fatherhood of God is such an important concept in the book of Ephesians. It's mentioned several times. Right here in chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 3, God is mentioned as the Father. Uh, He's mentioned as our father in chapter 2. This theological section is bookended, beginning of chapter 1 to end of chapter 3, with statements about God as father. We we run into this term again in chapter 4. One God and father of all who is over all and in all. And then, of course, in chapter 6, there's talk about uh, what it means to be a father And then there is another statement of the fatherhood of God. You do a whole sermon just on the fatherhood of God in the book of Ephesians, but basically what Paul is pointing out is that God is the source of everything that exists. He's the source of families. He's the source of unity within the church. Uh, We are to give thanks to God the Father for everything because he is the source of every good thing, the source of every blessing, the source of all of the things that declare his glory around us. The fatherhood of God means that he is 
the source. And so it's really interesting then to look at this idea in relation to Jesus Christ, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Here we're touching on the concepts of the Trinity. Here we're touching on things that are mysterious to us and difficult to understand, but there are basic, fundamental truths that are proclaimed in Scripture that we need to grasp at the same time as we need to accept the idea of mystery, that we are finite, that we are limited, that there are things that we can't understand completely. How is God the Father of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ himself is God? Well, one of the fundamental truths we have to understand is that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. We are monotheists. We believe in the existence of only one supreme God over all of the universe. That was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's repeated in the New Testament. In fact, it's repeated in the book of Ephesians. There is one God, Ephesians chapter 4. We do not in any way hold to multiple gods. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, hear, O church, hear, O world, there is one supreme God over all of the universe. We also see in the revelation of Scripture that this God exists in three persons. And that's when things get really confusing for us. Sometimes somebody might say, well, that's a contradiction. You can't be one and three at the same time. But simply, logically speaking, that is not true. That is not a contradiction because we're not saying that God is one in the same way that God is three. God is one in essence, one in being, three persons, three expressions of that one essence. Words continually fail, but that is what is revealed in Scripture. If we were to say God is one God and three gods, or we were to say God is one person and three persons, there would be a contradiction. But we see in Scripture, it's not just what we say, it's what is revealed. God is one in essence, and God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In relation to Jesus, that relationship between the Father and between Christ is called begotten. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. John 1.14, John 1.18, John 3.16. John continually refers to Jesus as the only begotten of the Father. Unfortunately, John doesn't say what that means. He just states that as the fact. That is the relation between the Son and the Father. That in eternity past, 
There's not a time when Jesus came into existence because he didn't exist previously. There's not a time when he was made. He's begotten, not made. That is what the church has stated historically from the scriptures. In eternity past, the Son is begotten of the Father. We also see the difference between the three persons of the Trinity in the way that the works of God are carried out. Everything that God does, God does as one, but the persons of the Trinity carry out different activities within that one action. Good example is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God the Father speaking words of creation. But Jesus, through whom all things were made, is the spoken word. And so Jesus is the means by which all of creation was carried out. Through him, all things were made by him and for him. But the Holy Spirit, Genesis 1-3, is the one who is hovering over the surface of the unformed earth. He is the, the manifest presence in creation. One act of creation, three persons of the Trinity working together. Point being, getting back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's important because it tells us something about Jesus. And it tells us that Jesus is God. Paul's next words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Underscore. First word in the title of Jesus there is that He is the Lord. He is God. He is divine. Everything that we speak of God, we speak of Jesus. When we speak of the excellencies of God, we are speaking of the excellencies of Jesus. When we speak of the superiority of God, we are speaking of the superiority of Jesus over everything in all of creation. This relationship of Father begotting Son means that Jesus is God. Jesus understood that, and the original hearers of these words understood that. A good example is John 5, 17 and 18. Jesus has just healed a paralytic. He's done so on the Sabbath. He's being accused of violating the law by doing work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus speaks these words in defense of himself. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath. So he compounded his crimes here. But he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There was no doubt in Jesus' mind and no doubt in his hearer's mind what he was saying about himself. When he calls God his father, he is saying that he himself is equal to God, that he himself is God. 
We can't go into all the New Testament proofs about the deity of Christ. They are laid out for you much better than I can in all kinds of books. But the fundamental fact that we have to understand in going into all of Ephesians is that Jesus is God, superior over all, excellent in his existence, worthy of our praise. We also see in this verse that Jesus is the promised Savior. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the, Old, for the Hebrew Old Testament word Messiah, the promised one. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned and they uh, were punished for their sin and the earth, the ground was cursed because of them. When every bit of pain and suffering and death and toil was brought into our existence, God made a promise. He made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. That was the very first promise that someone is to come who would bring salvation. And that promise continues through the Old Testament. That promise was given to Abraham that through his seed, all of the earth would be blessed. The promise was given to Moses that someone would come after him. The promise was given to David that that out of his line would, would come the ruler, the king. The promise was given, as we saw multiple times, to the prophets And then Jesus said that all of those promises came down to him. He had met a woman by the well in Samaria. He asked penetrating questions that demonstrated to her that something was going on beyond ordinary existence. I mean, this guy understood things about her that nobody could understand. He piqued her curiosity. And she said, Messiah's coming. When the Messiah comes, he'll answer all these questions. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. The promised Savior through the millennia had come. Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was assured would come to rescue us, to save his people. And then that concept of salvation is seen in these verses because he is the Lord Jesus Christ. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves. When Mary was pregnant and Joseph thought, I need to kind of get out of this because don't know what happened here. And the angel appeared to Joseph and said, don't divorce Mary. Don't be afraid to keep her as your wife. What is conceived in her her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ. God made flesh who walked among us, 
who then took our sins to the cross and died in our place, who rose from the dead to show that he had defeated sin and defeated death, and that salvation was truly available to all who will place their faith in him, is the promised one to rescue us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is fundamental for our study of Ephesians. It's fundamental for life because this is all about who we are and how we are to live in Christ. Paul's going to talk about salvation. He's going to talk about unity. He's going to talk about church life. He's going to talk about family relationships. He's going to talk about victory in this dark age. All of it comes down to our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to know and understand and accept who he is in order to really grasp what's going on in this book. The next thing that Paul lays out for us is truth about ourselves. And you might think that we're going to jump right into sin and darkness and all this kind of stuff, but that's not how Paul starts out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Our fundamental identity that Paul describes here is blessed. It's interesting that in this verse, he uses the word blessed three different times. It's all the same root, but three different nuances. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Again, all the same root, but different nuances, because when we are blessed, this good word that is spoken about us is not speaking of things that are fundamental to our existence, but speaking about things that are promised and assured for us. Again, going back to the Old Testament pattern of blessing, when people blessed God, they were speaking about things that are true of God. But when people themselves were blessed, it was speaking truth about what will happen in their lives. It was making promises. Not wishy-washy promises, but sure and certain promises. The blessings that we see most often in the Old Testament come in two different ways. One is when God blesses people. God blessed Abraham and gave him promises about his offspring, about the seed, about blessings for the nations. And then we see Abraham bless Isaac and Isaac bless Jacob when the firstborn receives from the father the blessing the statement about good things that are going to come as the inheritance that that individual is going to receive. In a little bit, we're going to read this verse in Galatians, but right now I just want to reference it where Paul says that we now are the recipients of the blessing given to Abraham. 
So that promise given way back then passes down through the generations and now is our promise. We are the recipients of the blessing that God had promised ages ago. What kind of blessing are we talking about? We are talking about a blessing in the heavenlies. Now that's an interesting expression. We are blessed in the heavenly realms, is what the verse tells us. Our mind first goes to heaven, right? To the place where God exists. And so this blessing has to do with something about going to heaven. But you can probably guess from the pattern of speech here, that's not what it's talking about. Because the problem is that the word or phrase in the heavenlies is used five different times in the book of Ephesians. Some of those times it does talk about the realm of God's existence, but it also talks in chapter, oops, slipped my mind, chapter 3, as well as in chapter 6, about the heavenlies being the place where dark, evil spiritual powers exist. When Paul says we have received blessing in the heavenlies, he is not talking about heaven where we are going to go someday. He is talking about a present reality and he is talking about the non-material world. He is talking about the world of spiritual existence that stands behind the things that we can see and touch around us. It's important to grasp because the blessings that Paul is referring to and that he will lay out for us are not material blessings. They are blessings that relate to the non-material world in which we currently exist. He is not saying you're going to be blessed someday when you get to heaven. In the meantime, tough luck. He's saying you are blessed right now even though you might not be able to touch it or see it or taste it because you are blessed in the spiritual world in which you currently exist. That's an important contrast with that Old Testament pattern of blessings. If you go back to the Old Testament, if you look at the book, for example, of Deuteronomy, the blessings that are promised are a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of sheep and cows and a vast extent of land and great political power and abundant crops. And those are the things that we set our eyes on so often. How many times do we say, oh, I've been so blessed, and what we are talking about is this, spirit, this physical material world. I remember we were sitting at the dinner table. This is coming to me right now as I speak, so I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but we said we're so blessed, and we were talking about something physical. And we caught ourselves that's how we think. And we pray for blessings. And we delight in blessings. 
But what we're delighting in is the crumbs, the things that are going to pass away, the things that are going to decay or rust or be stolen or be burned up in fire. And Paul says you have blessings in the heavenlies. You have blessings in the non-material realm. You have eternal pleasures that God is pouring out on us. We have a rich spiritual heritage, chosen, adopted, redeemed, sealed, guaranteed, assured, empowered, lifted up, saved, gifted, included. Those are the things that really matter. And these are the things that are not wishy-washy out there maybe someday. They can be ours today. That does not mean that we will not have darker, difficult times, by the way. I don't know how many of you realize, but this coming week is the anniversary of Pastor Mitchell's passing. It also marks basically a 12-month period of time in which 15 people in our church family have gone to eternity. There's never been a time like that in the life of Carrie Alliance Church. There has been so much loss and suffering over this last year. Would we say we're blessed? Yes. Because one of the amazing things in every one of those families was hope and confidence eternity, joy at the right hand of the Father. These are the promises, these are the blessings that carry us through the darkest of days when the waves and the storms and the floods come in. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that leads us to a final fundamental truth here, and that is that this is a Trinitarian verse because it speaks about the Holy Spirit. We are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Paul is not repeating himself. When he's talking about the non-material world, he talks about the heavenlies. When he says spiritual blessing, he is referring to the Holy Spirit, the one who brings those blessings to us. That's not just my own conjecturing. Every commentary I read this week focused on the Holy Spirit 
in this verse in the sense that spiritual blessings are blessings that are mediated by the Holy Spirit to us. And so this is a Trinitarian verse. Let's read together Galatians 3.14, which points out to us that the Holy Spirit himself is the blessing that was promised to Abraham and who brings us all the rest. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. We might have a few Jews in this room, but most of us are Gentiles, so he's talking about us. The blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. When we receive the Holy Spirit, He is the, for lack of a better term, the vehicle, the container <laughs> who brings to us all of those spiritual blessings that are promised to us in Jesus Christ. And so we must understand that this verse is about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together for our benefit. Just briefly, I want to point out one verse that helps us to understand the Trinitarian concepts involved here, and that is John 15, 26, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says the Holy Spirit goes out from the Father. The old term, the theological term, is the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That is the difference in relationship. That is the distinguishing factor among the three persons of the Trinity, even though, again, we don't entirely understand exactly what that means. But we do know from the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the divine trinity, and he is the one who brings us the blessings day in and day out. He is the one who applies the work of God to us. As we said before, in everything that God does, God is one and works as one, but each person of the trinity has a part, and the Spirit's part is executing or applying. And so from salvation, where the Holy Spirit regenerates us, he's the one who actually gives new birth, to serving each other, where the Holy Spirit is the one who is present in us and among us, giving gifts and empowering as we serve, in our relationships to each other as we live out the life of the Spirit and the Spirit-filled life, and in spiritual warfare, the Holy Spirit is active in us. This is another fundamental truth in Ephesians. The question that remains is how? How is all of this true of me or of you? And it's the final words in this verse, in Christ. We're speaking in universal terms, like this is true of everybody in the world, but it's not. It's true of those who are in Christ. 
This phrase, in Christ or in Him, is repeated 11 times in this first sentence of Ephesians chapter 1, and many more times throughout the whole book. We referenced it last week. It refers to the fact that if we have placed our faith in Christ, we are incorporated into Him. We become part of the body of Christ over which He is the head. And the things that are true of Christ become true of us because our new location is in Him. Two verses that help us understand right here in Ephesians chapter 1. 120 says, This mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. So in this realm of spiritual existence, Christ was raised actually above every other power and seated at the right hand of the Father. And then chapter 2, verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How is it that all these spiritual blessings are available to us? It's not because God reaches down and blesses us in our material existence, it's because when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and are incorporated into him, we then were raised and exalted along with Jesus Christ into the heavenly realms. And all of this is a call. All of this is a question Are you in Christ? It's not a question, did you say certain words some time ago? Yeah, I'm saved because I prayed a prayer 40 years ago or 70 years ago. No. Shouldn't it be clear that being in Christ is a whole lot more than saying certain words? It's not because I believe certain facts. It's because I have a living relationship in which I am located in Christ. Yes, there was a time. There was a time when I recognized that on my own there is no way I am nothing but dead and destined for eternal destruction. And so I placed my faith in Christ, entering into an entirely new realm of existence. And in this realm of existence, all of those blessings and all of those promises are good and true and sure. The question is, are you in Christ? Because everything that we're going to talk about for the next Nine months, Lord willing, ten months, has to do with being in Christ. And that is the most fundamental question that every one of us can answer this morning. Am I in Christ? Christ is the place in whom believers are and in whom Salvation is 
may I call you this morning to be in Christ. And if you need to know more of what that means, turn to your neighbor. Come up front after the service. Let's talk about it. There are two ways that I think that we can respond this morning beyond the question of being in Christ. And the first is to be a firmly founded people. These are truths on which it is worth building our existence. The world tells us all kinds of lies. Life brings us all kinds of deceptions. Who God is, who Jesus is, who we are in Christ, what the Holy Spirit means for us. This is the stuff that is worth living. And even in the darkest places and even in times of many losses, oh, oh, but I am in Christ. My loved one was in Christ. And the second one is to be a people of praise. Paul recognizes the blessing of what it means to have God as our Father and to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, somebody said that they were glad we were studying Ephesians because we're an Ephesians kind of church. I think what that meant is that we are a church that is theological in nature. Ephesians is a deeply theological book. But you know what else Ephesians is? Ephesians is a book that overflows with praise. Paul's heart just bursts forth in these beautiful expressions of giving God glory because of all that he is. Let us be a people of praise because of all that we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bless your name. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. We have praised and will continue to praise your name. But we also pray, Lord. We pray for each one of us as we've all experienced suffering and loss in the course of this year. We pray especially for those who have lost loved ones. Father, that the blessings that they experience would be comfort and peace and assurance of your goodness and of your grace. Lord, we also pray for anyone here who is not in Christ. And we pray for friends and we pray for loved ones. We pray for neighbors and co-workers. What a blessing to be in Christ and what a horror to be outside of Christ. Lord, as we revel in our blessings... Turn our hearts and our minds to those who have yet to be in Christ. Work, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.